Good seeing. We continue our study in Isaiah chapter 42. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there with me, we'll be considering today finding Christ's strength, looking particularly at this connection between the gentle, tender ministry of Christ and his great victory in the earth, and especially, of course, in his people as our Redeemer. Let's uh, read together from the prophet Isaiah chapter 42. I'll read to you starting in verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from prison, to those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Amen. Let us pray once more briefly as we come to this word. Our glorious God, whom we desire to follow and to serve with all of our hearts, and into whose image You are conforming us. You have sent your beloved Son into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even as we read of this servant in whom your soul delights, we pray that you would now bless us as we do behold him. Activate your word in our lives by your gracious spirit. Grant us fruitful and Uh, satisfying ministries. Give us passion and perseverance in our work, and may there be more and more victory in us, the weak but hopeful servants of so gracious a Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The beauty of the Christian life is that in our weakness, a power, a power that is beyond our deepest hope, becomes known to us. Even as the Lord said, my power is made perfect in weakness. God is always calling the Moses, who can't speak as he ought, the Gideon, who's full of fear and hiding, the geriatric Abraham and Sarah, who have no earthly hope of bearing a child, the young, sensitive Jeremiah, who is sent to minister in the most difficult and discouraging circumstances, Indeed, the Lord has even given a thorn to his servant Paul. And why? Because, you see, if dependence is necessary, weakness is an advantage. If dependence is necessary, 
Weakness is an advantage. So he calls and uses and blesses the weak. We should not be surprised to find that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. The Lord himself did some of his best work, of course, suffering and dying upon the cross. Though crucified in weakness, he now lives in power. And he told his disciples that in everything that matters, without me, you can do nothing. And this is a very practical matter. Um, The uh, pioneer missionary to China, Robert Morrison, was once asked, do you really expect to make an impact on that great land? No, sir, Morrison replied. But I expect God to. Hudson Taylor followed in Morrison's footsteps and later reflected that all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. That's it. God delights to be with, to bless his weak, inadequate people. And today we'll be considering the practical matter of how the weak can be made strong in the strength of the Lord. Well, here we are again in this 42nd chapter of Isaiah, the first of Isaiah's four servant songs, so-called. We're introduced to the servant of the Lord here who is anointed with God's Spirit to bring forth righteousness and salvation to the world. And we are everywhere reminded, of course, in the New Testament that these prophecies are fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus. Now, the Jewish people indeed were expecting the Messiah who would bring forth righteousness in the earth, and that the coastlands would wait for his law. They expected him to bring justice by military force. When Matthew quotes this passage, Jesus had been demonstrating God's astonishing power, yes, not in military victory, but by forgiving sins, by healing the needy. Jesus had just asked that his mighty miracles might not be made known abroad, And when the Pharisees sought to kill Jesus, he just quietly withdrew. This was not at all what they were expecting. But Matthew quotes this passage at that point to demonstrate that the Messiah was doing exactly what God had declared he would do through his prophets. That the Messiah would be tender and triumphant. That he would be gentle with the weak and victorious in the earth. Two weeks ago, we considered the meaning of this picture of the bruised reed as we are compared to something that is both weak and wounded, like a bruised reed. Last week, we considered what it meant that we were like smoking wicks, dim lights that flicker as well as smoke. But in both of these cases, we saw that the Redeemer is the hope of the poor and needy and is appointed to rescue such. Now, in this study, I've been presenting some of the greatest ideas from a man named Richard Sibbs in his devotional classic called The Bruised Reed. I try to do this every summer while people are in and out on vacation. Uh, these were sermons that he had published, as he said on the title page of his book, at the request of and for the benefit, for the help of, weak Christians. And that's been our special interest in this passage and study. And so if you're going on vacation and you're uh, picking up 
something to read and you want to learn more than I can teach you, just pick up a copy of The Bruised Read from Ligonier.com or your favorite Christian bookstore. I'm covering about three chapters a week, and I'll be on chapter 10 next week, considering what this means about Christ's victory among the nations. This week, I'd like to handle the important practical matter relating to our weakness and Christ's power. Now, I also showed you before, by way of review, in this poetry, that in verses 3 and 4, what we lack, Christ has. We are bruised, but he will not fail. Same word in the original. We are smoking, or failing, uh, but, uh, sorry, uh, but he will not be discouraged. That's what it is. Same, same word. Our victory is in him. But we'd like to consider today is, how does this work out? What is this connection, the unspoken connection here, between the tenderness of Christ's dealings and the power and victory that he brings. What are we to understand in this beautiful description of our Savior, who's gentle to the weak and great in victory? How can we find the Lord's help and strength in our weakness? And what does he expect us to do? Is this practical? And this is a pressing question, of course, for so many of us that are overwhelmed maybe in trying to serve the Lord or others in a difficult situation, or to maintain Christian principles amid much opposition at work or parenting children with difficulty or surmounting your fears as we seek to bear witness to Christ or loving others that are very hard to love or overcoming besetting sins, what we need to know is how can we have this victory in our weakness We often rightly think that the Lord is asking of us more than we are able to do. Rightly, I say. But forgetting that he's not asking us to do anything on our own. The prophet says, Cursed is the man who makes flesh his strength, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. But how does this work out? Well, I'd like to cover it under three headings today. And yes, it will be practical. First, we must love Christ. Second, the whole Christ. And third, nothing but Christ. And I'll show you how this works out. First, that we must love Christ. Brothers and sisters, why do we have this beautiful poetry, this sublime statement of our Lord here described in Isaiah 42? Why this song of poetry of our great and gracious Lord. Obviously, it it is to draw out our hearts to him and to turn our eyes upon him. It begins, behold my servant, God says, my elect one in whom my soul delights. And clearly we're to read this description and we are to love him also. And we're to say, what a beautiful, gracious, majestic Lord. Hallelujah, what a savior. Here is love that it's reaching down all the way to where we are, you and I, a love that has commended itself to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so it's written to draw out our hearts. And what is the connection then between our affection for him and the victory from this passage? Well, what we have before us today is the true power and genius of the Christian faith. 
which is our personal communion with and love for the Lord. Not to be too philosophical, but love is the greatest power in human life. It'll take you over broken glass. The greatest motivator, the greatest transformer of life. And Christ would have all of our heart. Christ will draw us onward by winning our hearts to himself and binding us to himself in love that we find that despite all the difficulties and problems and discouragements, we will not give him up. And I would like to illustrate this right off the bat so you understand how practical this is, even if it sounds philosophical, by a friend of mine's life, a former professor of queer theory at Syracuse University, Rosaria Butterfield, whose whole life changed as she began to realize the truth about Jesus and as he began to capture her heart. And as she says in her book, she lost everything but the dog. She was a tenured professor in a field of study contrary to the gospel. She was the head of student organizations on campus promoting sexual immorality. She had a home. She had a community that met in that home. She had a living girlfriend that slept in that home. She had an otherwise happy life, she said. But then she met Jesus. And he stole her heart. And, and, she, and she was perplexed. She didn't know what to do. Uh, terrible problems faced her. And she, she didn't even feel like they were problems, she said. How do you repent for a sin that doesn't even feel like a sin? And how could I and everyone that I knew and loved be in sin? And she has many painful, difficult, perplexing questions that came to her. And what does God want from her? To throw her whole life away? And how could she possibly find the strength to get through every day facing what she was facing? She answers, In this crucible of confusion, I learned something important. I learned the first rule of repentance, that repentance requires, listen, greater intimacy with the Lord than with our sin. Greater intimacy with the Lord than with our sin. How much greater, she asks? About the size of a mustard seed. Repentance requires that we draw near to Jesus no matter what, she says. And sometimes we have to crawl there on our hands and knees. Repentance is an intimate affair. And for many of us, intimacy with anything is a terrifying prospect. Now, God's given her a far more joyful and fruitful life now, but here's the point. She faced these overwhelming challenges, crushing, everyday crushing challenges. How was she able to find the strength that she needed? It was because she had a love for Christ that was... At the beginning, even just a mustard seed bigger than everything else that she loved in her life. And the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like treasure that a man finds in a field. And for joy, for joy, he sells all that he has and buys that field. Sometimes it is hard to get rid of all that we have. But love for Christ, this 
This love for Christ that is greater than everything else is the hope and power that we experience to the extent that this personal, powerful element is present when you're, when you're walking in the love of the Lord, when things are going well, you, you know you're not tempted in things, you have victory, it's just not, it's not a problem to, to, to speak of Christ, to the expect, extent that Jesus himself recedes into the background. Your religion becomes less Christian and more like the other religions of the world, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, religions that have a system of doctrine and moral commitments, but do not offer and do not totally depend on a personal, loving communion with God, the God who has come among men to make himself a man precisely that he might be a curse for us and that we might delight to know him and love him as our Savior and our King. Sibs puts it this way, the first conclusion to draw from this connection of this part of the verse, the former, sorry, is that Christ is mild in the way that we have seen so that he may then set up his government in those whom he is so gentle and tender over. He pardons us in this way so as to be obeyed as a king And he takes us to be his spouse so as to be obeyed as a husband. Christ rules us by a spirit of love, from a sense of his love, whereby his commandments become easy to us. He leads us by a free spirit, a spirit of liberty. His subjects are volunteers. The constraint that he lays upon his subjects is that of love. He draws us sweetly with cords of love. Yet remember also that he draws us strongly by a spirit of power, for it's not sufficient that we have motives and encouragements to love and obey Christ from that love. But Christ's spirit subdues our hearts and sanctifies them to love him, without which all other motives would be ineffective. My first, part is the, my first point is the most important but also the most practical. There are so many motives and powers in the Christian life, but this is the supreme one. Here is the one that must be the root of everything. Our religion must be at heart a religion of love. It's the first principle, the soul, the center, the engine that makes everything else go. Those who have experienced and felt God's love in Christ, those who have known this delight of the living Lord are changed by that love, by degrees, from being the sinful, self-centered people that we are by nature into those whose greatest ambition is to love God with all that is in them and others in his name. And every other virtue and every other duty is reduced to this. We don't just need more willpower. We need to behold the Lord's servant in his beauty and glory, a love that will empower us as the strongest of motives and draw us forward. Uh, I've told you before about my brother-in-law's pastoral counseling experience. He says time and again, he's sitting there with two people who are fighting about this and arguing about that, and he can see just at root, it's just a lack of love. That without love, 
well, he might be able to broker some agreement, but there will be no coming together. Some homework might help them, but it won't fix the real problem. But when you have even a little love, then there's hope that other things are going to be pushed out of the way. And we need to be mastered by the love of God in Christ. We need to gaze at this portrait of him in Isaiah 42 until we understand that love is the great enlarger of human life. It's the great engine of power and chains without which it doesn't matter how much Bible study you have or prayer or accountability or counseling. It might help a little, but it won't be enough without love for Christ, point one. You know, Jacob loved Rachel. And he worked, he worked seven years to marry that woman, and then, of course, seven more afterward. But we read it was just like a few days because he loved her so much. And when we read a passage like this, we need to delight in the Savior and recognize the great power of love. We need to behold God's servant and delight in him as well. And that's why so many years before, this beautiful poetry is given so that we could expect not only a helper and a Savior, but a gracious, beautiful, desirable Savior. Just a few verses before this passage is quoted in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So point one, here is the great power and engine of the Christian life. This is the connection between his tender, gracious care and his mighty victory in the earth. The power of love. We must love Christ. Secondly, the passage teaches us that we must love the whole Christ. The whole Christ. Here in our passage, the Messiah is clearly portrayed as chiefly our king and our deliverer. He will bring forth justice for truth. He won't fail or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Or the Lord says, I will give you as a covenant of the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners in prison, those who sit in the darkness, and so forth. Jesus is chiefly portrayed here as a king. And this is very important, especially, I think, in our American tendency that we think of Jesus, that we look to Jesus as a teacher and as a forgiver, one who doesn't want us to sin, but forgives us if we do. And when people seek him, it's because, oh Lord, I've done it again. But if that's all who your Christ is, that Christ is far too small. This is not the whole Christ, and it's not the real Christ. The real Christ is the one to whom we look to rule and subdue our very hearts. That we submit our hearts, our hours, our choices, our lives to him to rule, however painful, however uncomfortable. And we find, we find there's an unwillingness in ourselves but Sib says, you know, other princes can make good laws, but they can't write them on people's hearts. Nevertheless, this is Christ's prerogative. He 
can not only give you the law, but by as a king, he can subdue your heart. Or, Sibs again, where Christ as a prophet teaches us by his spirit, he likewise as a king subdues the heart by his spirit to obedience to what is taught. That is the teaching which is promised by God. Not only the mind, but the heart itself is taught. What do you need most in a time of temptation, agony of trial? You need strength of heart. And this is the very thing that he is appointed to to give us. Augustine and his confessions perfectly captured the prayer that we need to pray. O Lord, command what you will, but grant what you command. Command what you will, but grant what you command. We have, a, we have a king who is not only able to teach you what's right and to forgive you when you sin, but can conquer and subdue and rule in your heart. Do you go to him for that? Do you seek him for that? And sometimes you have to wrestle in prayer just like Jacob was wounded and weakened in his wrestling with the Lord, but he would not give up until he had received the blessing. And sometimes we have to wrestle in prayer until our willingness, our desires, are conformed to his, and we find his power over our temptations. He is not just a prophet who teaches or a priest that takes away our sins. He's a mighty king appointed by God to rule and subdue us and to lead us. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin, he says. But if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Are you looking to him as the one who is able to set you free? Or is it just, Lord, I know you taught me to do good and I've done bad again. Some wicked people do not look to Christ as king. They just want him as priest, as the one who wouldn't forgive them and be gentle in our weakness, but not deliver us from it. And if we sin, well, he's a great priest to take away our sins. He'll forgive us. That's his job, they think. Well, we need to understand from the passage that Jesus is as great a, pre, a great, as great a king as he is a priest. Neither our weaknesses nor his tenderness should for one moment make us careless or presumptuous, but to recognize that in him is fullness of strength and with increased humility, we need to seek the whole Christ not just to learn his will and be washed from our sins, but to be ruled and delivered by his mighty power. And Sibs once more says, only those who have taken that yoke encountered it greater happiness to be under his government than to enjoy liberty of the flesh. Only those who will take the whole Christ and not divide Lord from Jesus and make a Christ from their, of their own can make this claim to be Christians. That if we are going to gain power and weakness, we need to have the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to love the whole Christ and find in that whole Christ our victory. Point two. 
Third, and I hope most practically, we need to love nothing but Christ. We need to love nothing but Christ. Before we believed, we were so much happier to do our own will than the Lord's will. And now that we love him, we find that we only have peace when we're able to overcome our own desires and not yield to them. And this is a great struggle. We need to have less of a divided heart to have greater victory. And, and yet we, we find ourselves struggling at this very point. And so Sibs has these four practical rules to help us. He says, first, corruption gains ground in every neglect. Every time you choose something else more than Christ, you are weakening yourself. Every time you throw your affection to somewhere, somewhere else more than Jesus, your corruption is gaining ground. And you'll be so much happier if you do the Lord's will than your own. And so we need to recognize the habitual power, the habitual strength of sin. Corruption gains ground in every neglect. Now, second, as we do our duty, God strengthens the influence that he has in us. And he often delights to take advantage of our reluctance, he says, to make manifest his work more clearly. So we, 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 we might want to go a certain way, but we find ourselves of divided heart. We don't want to do our duty. And we think, oh Lord, if you could just help me want to do this, to give me strength, give me power, then I'll do it. And he says, you need to recognize that so much of the time, God tells you to get going and I'll give you grace as you go. Like when he brought his people into the promised land. The Jordan River was at flood stage, and he tells them to go across the river, something they can't do. But he says, don't worry, as soon as the feet of the priests hit the water, I'll cause the river to stop, and you're going to go across on dry land. You go, and I will bless you. So often we want to have all the conviction and strength and resolve that we need ahead of time, but that's not usually God's way. He wants us to look and to look and to look again to him as we go. Or remember that Jesus told the disciples, hey, you give this crowd of 5,000 something to eat. <laughs> and he, they say, look, we don't, have, we don't have nearly enough food. We don't have enough to, to, uh, to feed a boy. I mean, all we have is five loaves and two fish from some kid. And Jesus took those, and he didn't go create a big stockpile and said, okay, now, here's all that you need. Now you can do it. Oh, no. It says that Jesus kept giving the food to the disciples to set before the crowd. They would have to go back and go back and go back and go back that Jesus would bless and break and no one knew better than those disciples at that moment that they were doing every step by the Lord's power, moment by moment. 
This is the picture of how we are being called to serve the Lord in our lives. We have to keep going back. We are going to be remaining in a position of weakness. We are not going to have enough. We cannot do it in ourselves. And we're struggling against this feeling of unwillingness, of need, of inadequacy. And we're having to return to the Lord time and time and time and time again for more. And this insufficiency is a kind of terror and offense to us. But this is how he is training us to live in his strength, to go and get all that we need every moment from him. You have to obey. You have to start going. You have to get up in the morning and do what he has called you to do and to go back to him for the strength that he gives you as you need it. And when we serve the Lord, then the blessing is given. Sometimes he lets our hearts fail. Sometimes he lets our strength fail. You can think again of those disciples. They're, they're, uh, they're sent into the boat while Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray. He says, now, now go over to the other side of the sea. And, and there's this wind that's contrary, and they row for hours and hours, in the, and they can't get past the middle of the sea. But he wants them to see at the hour when their strength is failing that there he is walking on the waves, stilling the storm, and that he is able to come to their help in an impossible situation to deliver them. He, he has these parables so that he could strengthen their faith and to have them remember in the years that follow that no matter what they were doing, even if it seemed impossible, even if it seemed hopeless, even if their strength was totally gone, that he would not leave them or fail them. Be still, my soul, your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. So this practical instruction he wants to give. Okay, you need to love nothing but Christ. Corruption, point one, will gain ground every time you neglect your duty. Second, as we do our duty, God strengthens the influence he has. He delights to take advantage even of our reluctance to show his work more clearly. Third, he says, obedience is most direct when there's nothing else to sweeten the action. Although the sacrifice is imperfect, Yet the obedience with which it is offered is accepted. Have I lost you? When you don't feel like obeying, when you find that you have precious little love in your hearts, when you are just going to do it out of sheer obedience to the Lord, The Lord is glorified in that. And you are to mourn and confess how little desire you have for his will, how little love you have for his name, but even such an imperfect offering is precious in his sight. And when we do that, we often find, point four, that feeling and freeness of spirit are often reserved until duty is discharged, that reward follows work that when we have been so tried, that when we just do it 
out of a sheer desire to obey the Lord, if nothing else, then we can find on the other side the reward of feeling and freeness of spirit. Rosaria Butterfield, back again, she says this, I've discovered that the Lord doesn't change my feelings until I obey him. <laughs> I mean, she, she, she looked at the sins in her life and the sins in her friend's life, and she says, frankly, I don't see the problem. And there was so much she didn't understand until, until she began to obey the Lord. And after she obeyed, she found that, that feeling and freeness followed and that God rewarded her work, a freeness of spirit that comes from having gained the victory. For having loved Christ more than all, she was rewarded with him himself. We must love nothing but Christ. And all the other things that we do in life which are, which are good, right? all the other motives, all the other helps, all these things will only help us ultimately insofar as we have love for Christ, the whole Christ, and nothing but Christ. That is the heart of the matter. This beautiful picture in Isaiah 42 is given to us to draw in our hearts to make us willing, joyful servants that we might gladly participate in his victory. Now, in conclusion, would like us to consider what we're about to do here at the Lord's table. When we come to the Lord's table, we're often looking at ourselves. And I encourage you to do that week after week, as we should. But there's another side of this table that's too often neglected. Sibs again, Christ drank the dregs of the cup for us and will help us so that our spirits will not utterly fail. He became a man and a curse, a man of sorrows for us. He was broken that we should not be broken. He was troubled that we should not be troubled. He became a curse that we should not be accursed. And so we need to look unto Jesus. We have some questions in the larger catechism of our church that deal with how we are supposed to be coming to this table. Things that call us to reflect upon ourselves. How should we come to this Lord's table? Um, well, we need to prepare ourselves by examining ourselves, of being in Christ, and of our sins, and of the measure of our knowledge, of our faith, repentance, to love God and our, and our brethren, our charity to all men, forgiving those who have done us wrong, of our desire after Christ, and of a desire for new obedience. By serious meditation and fervent prayer, that is how we benefit from the Lord's table. Now we have a question May one who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper. So here are the things balanced that I wanted to put before you again. We have this commandment to take and eat. 
but we, we know that we are supposed to come in, in faith and love and repentance and a desire for new obedience. We know that we have this preparation, we have this desire to be found in Christ. Can we who doubts, doubt of our being in Christ or of our preparation come to this Lord's Supper? What do you think? A lot of it depends. A lot of your answer will depend on which way you're looking. If you look only at yourself in this supper, if you look toward yourself, you will find every reason not to come. But our answer is this. One who doubts of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the Lord's Supper may yet have true interest in Christ, though he be not yet assured of it, and in God's account has it. And so, if someone is duly affected with their need for Christ and unfeignedly desires to be found in Christ and to depart from iniquity, because the promises that are made and the sacrifice that the sacrament rather that is appointed is appointed even for the relief of weak and doubting Christians. Well, then we are to bewail our unbelief, and we are to labor to have our doubts resolved. But in so doing, we may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper that we may be further strengthened. It's not a table that we might come to presume in an ignorant or scandalous way but it's a table that's appointed for the weak, for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians, that we might come to the table and be assured of his good purpose, of his promise. And I won't have time to go through the scripture references, but if you spend the time this afternoon going through them, you'll have a new understanding. Christ in this table has come to accommodate himself to our weakness, to give us these tokens and pledges of his covenant that even if we are not faithful, he is faithful, he cannot deny himself. Even if we struggle, even if we find ourselves weak, we come to this table that we might find him strong. He spreads this feast for us that we might chiefly not look to ourselves but to him whose victory we celebrate. So, dear brothers and sisters, do you love Christ? The whole Christ. Nothing but the Christ. You see, not as I ought to. Not as I long to. Not as I desire to. That picture in Isaiah is given to draw out your heart to him to encourage you to press on in love. But another picture is given here, is it not? Of a body that is broken for you, of blood that was shed for you, O man, that you might live forever with him. Is that able to work in your heart to overcome all that is contrary more and more? Then I welcome you to this table. If you have such a spark of love, come, take, and eat. If that does not describe you, I do encourage you to remain seated, to find 
even today through prayer, a love that you did not have perhaps when you came in, seeking the Lord that you might find in him one that your soul delights in. But let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless these elements again to us. So many years ago, appointed by our Lord Jesus Christ to confirm our covenant with him and our interest in him, that he might strengthen us in our weakness and that he might deliver our uh, very desires unto victory in him. We do confess it, Father. We confess that in so many ways our, our, our love is faint Our preparation is weak. Our doubts attend us so many times. And yet, this weak hand reaches out to grasp and lay hold of a mighty Savior and pray that the one who is our help and our victory might be found by all today who have such need.